This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're listening to the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Hey everyone, Tim McMaster here along with Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo of MLBPipeline.com as we bring you our weekly Pipeline podcast. And the last couple of weeks we've gone in-depth on all the new rankings. Of course, the top 100 prospects is out. Corey Seager, number one. Byron Buxton, number two. We discussed that last week. Uh, Next, as far as rankings go, will be the top 30 prospects per team. Those will start coming out on February 22nd until the 29th, and then we'll also break down the top 10 organizations in the game from a prospect standpoint. That'll be March 1st through March 4th. So still lots of stuff coming out on MLBPipeline.com, but let's start this podcast, guys, um, with some news and notes, I guess, from the last week and some trades that have involved prospects. Uh, The Corey Dickerson-Jake McGee deal between the Rockies and the Rays. It was a deal that you knew that the Rays were probably looking to trade Jake McGee, and you knew that the Rockies had to trade one of those outfielders because they had too many at this point, and those teams certainly came together, and it made a lot of sense. As far as prospects go, Herman Marquez goes to the Rockies in this deal. So, Jim, let's start with you. He's a guy that he can throw hard, um, but break him down for us. What exactly are the Rockies getting? Yeah, he was kind of an interesting uh, guy to get in this trade. I mean, the Rockies have one of the better farm systems in baseball, and we plopped him in the middle of our top 30 list. I mean, you're right, he does have a good fastball, 92-95 up to 97. But I think what, what, what excites you about him is that for a kid who, who's only 20, really made a lot of strides. You know, he's not just a guy who throws. You know, that, that's all he can do. He can spin a curveball. That really made some improvements last year. Uh, Shows some feel for change-up. Threw a lot of strikes, had almost uh, – Three-and-a-half to one strikeout-to-walk ratio in high Class A as a 20-year-old. Um, you know, this is a guy, you know, he's not a big guy, he's not real physical, he's about six foot one, 185. But this is a guy who, you know, has a ceiling, I think, as a, a mid-rotation starter. Uh, the, the whole trade was interesting to me. I mean, you can get into the fact that, you know, the Rays control Dickerson for longer than the Rockies, who aren't, I don't think, going to contend, are going to control McGee, who, who might be more of a luxury. But then Marquez is pretty interesting. And then Kevin Padlow, who went to the Rays, is a little bit interesting, too. Well, we'll see how much power he grows into. But he had a real nice season as an 18-year-old in the short season Northwest League. And I think he has a chance to hit and hit for some power. Not sure he's going to be a third baseman long term, but promising bat. Yeah, the Rockies are in a tough situation there in the West because it seems like everybody is just getting better and better. And and they don't want to be that team, I think, that goes full rebuild mode. So it's a tough situation. Uh, when you talk about Marquez, I know the Rockies are particular about the kind of pitchers they bring in because of Coors Field. Does he kind of fit the mold that they generally like? I mean, I know they like ground ball pitchers or strikeout pitchers. Does he fit into what they're looking for? Um, you know, more of a strikeout guy than a groundout guy. Uh, you know, it's not like he has heavy sink on the fastball. I think it's more of a four-seamer. Didn't miss a ton of bats, but, you know, a lot of that you could kind of write off probably to being young and working on secondary pitches. You know, I wouldn't necessarily say 
that he's tailor-made or he, he, he fits that prototype of the type of guy you, you hope that would succeed, like a, a big, tall guy who can throw the ball downhill with some sink. I, I just think he's more of a, a, a good arm and has some feel for pitching, and they're confident they can do something with that. All right, the Diamondbacks and the Brewers also coming together for a trade over the last week. A five-player deal, and the, the big names that stick out in this one, Gene Segura goes to the D-backs. They were looking for more offense at shortstop. Aaron Hill and Chase Anderson go to the Brewers. Those are the major leaguers involved. But each team, they kind of swap prospects in this deal as well, Jonathan. Uh, Tyler Wagner goes to the Diamondbacks. He now slots in as their number 10 prospect. And now he's a guy who relieved in college, right? But they've made him into a starter, or the Brewers had made him into a starter in their system. Yeah, and uh, and he's had success. You know, it, it, it happens. I mean, teams have done it a lot. You know, Michael Lorenzen is probably a guy that jumps to mind as a guy who had, had only relieved. Uh, you know, he was a two-way player at Fullerton and then made it up in the Reds' rotation. Uh, so it does happen from time to time. I think what's been so surprising with Wagner is his uh, his feel for pitching. You know, he's he's not just a uh, stuff guy, throw hard reliever type, which is why they thought they could develop him as a starter. Uh, he's more kind of a average tick above across the board, controls the ball well, gets ground balls. Of, you know, uh, maybe the phrase of today's podcast is throwing downhill because uh, he does that. Uh, from a six foot three frame, uh, so you know he he limits his damage that way. Uh, he's been a workhorse. Uh, he's a guy who has been very very durable over 100 and what is it over 165 innings combined last year. Uh, so you know th- it's not a high ceiling kind of starting pitcher uh, here, but a guy who is ready to contribute. Uh, I think you know he made the jump from Double A to. To the big leagues briefly and got knocked around a little bit, so I could see him going down to Triple A uh, for a little bit. But could be that guy who is on the short list of who to call up when there is a need in the big league rotation, and it could be a real solid number four type starter when all is said and done. And maybe uh, ends up being a, a key piece to this deal because I think nobody's sure what Gene Segura is going to bring as far as offense goes. I know that's what they want to get out of him, but he struggled the last couple of years with the bat. All right, on the other side of the deal, the Brewers get Isan Diaz, Jonathan. Uh, here's a guy, MVP of the rookie-level Pioneer League. Um, he's a young shortstop. Just kind of break him down for us. Yeah, he uh... – I think he surprised a, a lot of people uh, with, with that year. Uh, he was a, you know, a high school guy out of Massachusetts. Uh, kind of, I remember coming out of the draft, kind of got that label as a you know, quote-unquote real baseball player. Uh, Arizona liked him enough to sign him away from Vanderbilt. You know, Vanderbilt does a tremendous job finding talent in New England and the Northeast in general. Uh, and he just hit. Uh, you know, this is not a guy who I think was thought to have the kind of power that he showed. Now it's, it's a small sample size. He also didn't hit that well in 2014 during his debut. So uh, there was a question of what, how he would follow it up. But I think a lot of eyes will be on him in terms of what he will do over the course of a full season. He's not real big. Uh, he doesn't run all that well, but he's a good base runner. Um, you know, he's one of these guys who's, uh, plays above his tools, uh, you know, gets good jumps. Uh, lack of foot speed doesn't hurt him in, in terms of his ability to defend. Probably 
is best at second base when all is said and done, especially as he moves up the ladder, you know, and the game speeds up. Uh, but he's largely played shortstop and has been a little bit better than uh, anticipated. Uh, so, I, you know, if I'm Milwaukee, uh, I, I continue to let him see time at both infield positions. Uh, I think, uh, you know, the probably one of the biggest parts of this trade is actually uh, with Segura gone, it, it, it opens the, the door for Orlando Arcia, who's one of the better shortstop prospects in all of baseball. Uh, Isan Diaz is not going to unseat Orlando Arcia at shortstop. So, uh, but let him play on both sides of second base. If you think that he can be an everyday second baseman and he hits like he did in the Pioneer League, he could be a pretty good left-handed hitting offensive-minded second baseman when all is said and done. How quickly could he move, Jonathan? Well, you know, Northeast guy, I mean, he is from Puerto Rico originally, but, uh, you know, I think he might be a station at a time. Uh, advanced field a hit certainly helps. Uh, let's see how he does, you know, in low A in 2016. Uh, if, he, if he hits his way up to, to Class A advanced ball, then he's a guy who could, the back could move him more quickly. I think it depends on where they want him to play defensively. Uh, you know, if they still want him to get reps at shortstop, that, you know, that may slow him down a little bit. If they think he can be an everyday second baseman, they could just let him play there every day, and I think that might speed his, his process up. All right, one other move in the last few days. Uh, within the Keystone State, Jesse Biddle goes from the Phillies to the Pirates. Now, Jesse Biddle, formerly a really well-regarded prospect, but he's kind of run into all sorts of trouble, and, and now Tommy John surgery as well. Jonathan, what has kind of gone wrong with Jesse Biddle over the last few years? Well, I mean, that's a long list. <laughs> um, I mean, he's struggled with the whole sort of thing. They take a leave of absence. He... Uh, couldn't find the strike zone. And, you know, from a pitching standpoint, non-injury related, that was the, the biggest issue is uh, this was a guy who coming out, you know, the guy who was a, uh, on our top 100 list and thought of as one of the more intriguing young left-handed pitching prospects in baseball, uh, he had pretty good stuff and a good feel for pitching for a high schooler, especially for a kid who was from eastern Pennsylvania, got drafted by his hometown team, Smart kid, uh, just struggled with command, uh, and that continued for a while. And then, you know, then had injury problems, uh, and then went down with the elbow, which was a shame because last year he kind of he didn't get back to where he was, but he got back on the mound pitching regularly, showed some signs of life, and and then then blew out the elbow. So. You know, the Pirates are getting a guy who once had a lot of potential. Um, we all, you know, sort of talked about him when we were prepping for, for the podcast this week that the Pirates do have that reputation of, of fixing guys. Uh, so there, there is uh, a lot to fix here. But first and foremost, he's got to get back to being healthy and rehabbing the elbow. Uh, and you're not going to see really any signs of what he might be again probably until 2017. And I think, too, Jonathan, I think in a way he's kind of a cautionary tale. I mean, one of the things I always look at for prospects is strikeout numbers, see how many bats are missing. And I think he's kind of a classic cautionary tale about how even that can be deceptive at times because his signature pitch when he was highly regarded was a curveball. But the curveball was not a power curve. It was more of a mid-'70s curve. It was a curve with a lot of depth. But he had trouble keeping it in the strike zone. And as he got to higher levels – 
you know, the walk problems became more uh, exacerbated because better hitters, you know, knew to lay off the curve. It wasn't going to land in the strike zone that much. If you missed up with it, it didn't have a lot of power to it, so it tended to get pounded. And, you know, if, if you grade out his stuff, even when he was going good, it's not like when he was striking batters out in A-ball, he was throwing 95 miles an hour, had an unbelievable curve. I, I just think it was the type of stuff that, that plays – well against less advanced hitters, and he kind of got exposed and then, you know, had to nibble more, you know, trying to, to get guys because he couldn't just throw the ball by guys or get swings and misses, and it, and it kept adding up. We'll see. I mean, I do agree with you, but there's one organization that you could pick to, to help, you know, straight out a wayward pitcher. It's got to be the Pirates. Yeah, they've really had the magic touch over the last few years with Ray Searage and company getting things done. All right, well, we, we've talked a lot. I mentioned off the top of the podcast the top 100 prospects, guys, and, and you can look at that full list now on MLBPipeline.com. But I know when you guys put together a list like this, a lot more goes into it than just getting the 100. There, there's more guys than that that get considered and don't make the list. And I know you guys have guys in your head that, that – you maybe wanted to see on the list that didn't get there or that you will think will soon make it to the list. So I wanted to get into some of the not-quite-top-100 prospect guys and uh, a hitter and a pitcher from each of you. Uh, Jonathan, let's start with you. Who's a hitter that didn't make the cut as far as the top 100 prospects list that we may see on there maybe later this season or who could quickly move into that list shortly? Well, I'm going to be, you know, a bit of a homer. I've been accused of it before, so I'm, I'm okay with that. Uh, I'm going to stay in the Pirates organization. And Harold Ramirez uh, is a guy that we, we, we uh, talked uh, a bit about in terms of whether he should be on the top 100. Uh, and he ended up uh, just shy of it. Uh, but this is a guy who all, all he's done is really hit. Um, he's had some injury issues, but he's coming off a year where he hit 337 in the Florida State League, stole 22 bases, uh, showed some extra base power. They only played 80 games because um, he showed up out of shape, unfortunately. But uh, he's got tools. I mean, he can hit, he can run. Uh, he, he should be able to play center field every day, someday. Uh, obviously, you know, the Pirates are pretty good in terms of outfield depth. Uh, so uh, it remains to be seen what happens with him. He's not like your typical, you know, Austin Meadows is the guy who ranks high on, on, on the list in terms of the Pirate Outfields prospects, and he is, to quote uh, our, our friend John Hart, what they look like. Harold Ramirez is not. He's, you know, 5'10", 210 pounds. Uh, so he, he's not that prototypical athletic, toolsy-looking guy, but he is athletic and toolsy and uh, really good approach at the play. He's going to move up to double-A this year. I think that if he continues to hit like he did last year in Double A, at some point during the season, as guys graduate off that top 100, he, he he's got a shot to move on to the list. It's really remarkable the number of outfielders, toolsy outfielders that the Pirates have been able to pile up at all levels, major league, all the way down into the minor leagues. Jim, how about you? Who's a hitter that that you want to see on that top 100 list soon? Well, I, I could see Lucius Fox making a big jump uh, from the Giants. Uh, He'd be the guy. You know, I don't think he's necessarily next in line because he's yet to make his pro debut. But uh, you know, very, very exciting potential and kind of an unusual story. You know, he was a high school senior in Florida last year. He'd he'd gone around on the high school showcase circuit, 
guys knew who he was. And, and Jonathan, uh, if I remember this correctly, I, I don't think he was generating first-round buzz. He was an interesting yeah. guy, but it wasn't like people were saying, this guy's going to be a first-rounder. And then he winds up moving back to the Bahamas, where he's from, and becomes an international free agent and gets $6 million, coincidentally enough, on July 2nd, which is his birthday. So he turns 18 and he gets a $6 million present from the Giants, which was the most ever given to a non-Cuban international amateur player. And you know, just very exciting guy. I mean, he's got plus-plus speed. He's a switch hitter who shows aptitude from both sides of the plate. He's got some gap powers. He's not going to just be one of these slappy guys. Hey, he's quick. He's got some arm strength. He's got good hands. But the only question on him, I think, is where he winds up playing. The Giants are bringing him out as a shortstop. The teams like him the most think he can stay there. Other teams you know, question the actions a little bit and think this is a guy who's going to wind up in center field. But even if he does, very dynamic. And, and you know, I think the package, you know, if you're trying to compare him to a current prospect, might be similar to Tim Anderson with the White Sox. Um, that Lucius Fox could be that type of player. And with Tim Anderson, I think there's some questions, too, as to whether ultimately is he going to be a shortstop or center fielder. But Lucius Fox, definitely excited to see what he does this year. And speak- I, I love the work he did for Wayne Enterprises. <laughs> I was waiting to see who would get the Batman I, comment. God, I mean, I, I want him to be on the top 100 just so I can continue to make Batman references. Absolutely, by all means. And as we you mentioned the White Sox, uh, Jim, and as we go back to you, Jonathan, with the pitcher, you like one of the, the White Sox young arms as well. Well, that was a good segue. Like that? That was very impressive. Um, yeah, I, I do. And he, I, I'm, he's kind of the guy that isn't necessarily that next on the list, so sort of like Jim said with, with Lucius Fox. Uh, but uh, Spencer Adams is a guy that I think – uh, is going to work his way into top 100 category uh, at some point. And, you know, the, the White Sox system, it, it's much maligned, I think. I, I've always found them to be kind of interesting because they rarely have guys who rank highly. Um, they do have guys like Chris Sale and Carlos Rodon who make it to the big leagues in like five seconds, and that part, that's part of it. They only have two guys on the top 100 in, in Tim Anderson and Carson Palmer, their first-round pick. Um, but Adams is a guy who just incredibly athletic, was a really good basketball player in high school. Uh, so he had split focus, ended up going in the second round uh, in 2014 and earned a promotion up to the Carolina League in his first full season. Uh, and, you know, I know Jim will probably say, would say something about him not missing a ton of bats, uh, and that's true, but this is a guy who does not walk many guys, 18 walks and 129 in the third innings, uh, gets ground ball outs. Uh, he's really projectable. So I think uh, because of the, the, the dual focus, you know, he's only had, what, a, you know, a year and a half, well, closing in on two years of just only pitching. There's a lot of upside here. So I think he's going to start missing more bats. Uh, his strikeout-to-walk ratio has been insane as, as a professional. Uh, so – and he's got four pitches. So, you know, his feel for pitching has been better than expected, and I think there's more to come, uh, if not in velocity, than just in, in overall command and sharpening up the secondary stuff. So uh, I think this is a guy who uh, he turns 20 in April. So he's going to, you know, spend all of this coming season at age 20, and he could end up in double-A before the year is over. So I think he's kind of ahead of where, 
a lot of people thought he would be. Jonathan? Yeah, he, he, I like him too, Jonathan. I, I was just going to chime in and say, you know, at the time of the draft, there was a lot of excitement. The 2014 draft up here in Chicago, White Sox fans, and, and I did a bunch of radio shows. People asking, you know, how could they possibly get Carlos Rodon at three? And I said, well, how could they get Spencer Adams at 44 also? Uh, you know, I think he is going to miss more bats. It, you know, what happened with him, it happens to a lot of high school guys. You go from pitching, you know, once a week, a short high school schedule, to pitching once every five days for a four-month schedule. And, and you know, it takes a little while to get acclimated to that. His stuff wasn't quite as as spectacular as it was coming out of coming out of high school. But it was still solid, and he still threw a lot of strikes. I agree with Jonathan. I think he's going to continue to get better and better. And, you know, that strikeout-to-walk ratio you referenced, 155-22 to 22 so far in pro ball. And he even pitched some in high class A, so it's not like he's been going against, you know, real low-level hitters. He's moved very quickly. And, Jim, we're going to stay in the Windy City, I think, for your pitcher that you like a lot, close to home, right? Yep, I think, uh, you know, and it's another uh, Georgia high school product. Uh, Dylan Cease, I think, is a guy who, who could, could charge way up this list and, and perhaps even rank as the Cubs' best pitching prospect uh, at some point in 2016. You know, he would have been a first-round pick in 2014, or at least had a chance to go a first round in 2014. But he hurt his elbow. It was kind of common knowledge he was going to need Tommy John surgery. That did not scare off the Cubs. They took him the sixth round and paid him a million and a half bonus to get him signed uh and uh you know the, the early returns have been great you know, he came back from tommy john surgery last summer uh was working 94 97 miles an hour with fastball hitting triple digits he's also got a hard breaking ball he's got a, the potential for solid change up you know we're, we're gonna have to see about the control that's usually the last thing to come back from tommy john but but pure, you know, just pure arm strength and very very exciting guy the, uh, the top 10 organizations, guys, you're going to unveil between March 1st and 4th as far as uh, organizational depth and, and the prospects down there. We're not going to give away the list at all, but I did want you each to kind of share one of your favorite lists. So obviously these organizations you're going to talk about are going to end up somewhere in that top 10, but that's as far as we'll go as far as giving information away. I'll start with you, Jonathan. Uh, which organization really stands out to you right now as we head into the 2016 season? Well, I, I, you know, it's hard to look past what the Atlanta Braves have done in, you know, if you go back to, well, you could go back, you know, a year and a half, but really from the past trading deadline through this off offseason, uh, just in terms of remaking their farm system, you know, this was an organization that for years built their success on, Drafting uh, and signing really like high ceiling, high end talent, letting them develop and get to the big leagues and turning them into really good big leaguers, and they, they kind of got away from that. And uh, John Hart, when he joined them, and and joined by John Coppola, who was there and as now the general manager, uh, really committed to rebuilding their farm system, and uh, they have done that. Uh, obviously, we we'll have to see how it all pans out, but, uh, you know, you look at the, what, they have four guys on the top 100. Uh, Swanson, Newcomb, and Blair all came via trades. I, you know, they have, Tyrell Jenkins came via trade. I mean, he could be a future top 100 guy. Uh, and then they just filled in, you know, with a lot of depth, uh, guys that they've brought in uh, via trades over the last couple of years, uh, up and down 
what their top 30 will 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 look like. So uh, they they have to be considered now one of the the best farm systems. And I think if you were going to uh, off the top of your head come up with a list of most improved farm system list, uh, if they're not number one, I would be very shocked to, if, if they weren't on the top of that list. And Jim, despite Dansby Swanson being in the Braves organization, you're going to actually talk about a different team. Yeah, and I'll even uh, – I will try to shock Jonathan here because I think if you're comparing organizations to where they were a year ago at this time when the Braves had started to make a bunch of these trades, I actually would pick the Brewers as the most improved farm system over the course of the last year, uh, including Isan Diaz joining the fold. But in terms of the best farm system – I would go with the I would go with the Dodgers, and I guess what strikes me they're they're also improved compared to a year ago. I, I've done the Dodgers list for for three years for MLB.com, and a year ago, you know, they had, they had made some trades. They they had the, the big three up top in, in Corey Seager, Julio Urias, and Jock Peterson, but the depth was, was notably lacking, and it was tough coming up with 30 guys to to round out the the full list as we expanded from 20 to 30. Now I look a year later. You know, they are held by the fact that Corey Seager still counts as a prospect until he plays about another three weeks in the big leagues. But you know, they, they still have Seager and Urias at the top. Jose De Leon's one of the best strikeout pitchers in the minors, and they also have Grant Holmes and, and Frankie Montas from the top 100. But, but the depth behind those guys is just startling compared to a year ago. You, you've seen guys like Cody Bellinger and Alex Verdugo, position players, take a big step forward. They went crazy on the international market last year. They added Yadier Alvarez for $16 million in a matching tax penalty. Uh, Cuban outfielder Yusniel Diaz for $15.5 million in a matching tax penalty. And some less expensive but still very pricey players, guys like Starling Heredia, Omar Estevez. So they've really bolstered it that way. They got Montas and Micah Johnson and Trace Thompson for kind of being the middleman in the Todd Frazier trade between the White Sox and the and the Reds earlier this winter. Uh, Jarrell Cotton's a guy who, who's taken a step forward. Uh, the, the system just looks so much deeper to me than it did a year ago. And even the draft, even though they didn't sign Kyle Funkhauser, Walker Bueller, I think, is going to be a nice pick, who they got lower than he should have been because he, he had a elbow injury that required Tommy John surgery. And they, they got some... Later round guys like Brendan Davis and Imani Abdullah who, who have some upside too. So I, I'm very impressed uh, with how much depth they've amassed in a year in which they contended at the big league level. Usually when you make a jump like that, you're retooling like the Braves, like the Brewers. But the Dodgers contended and bolstered their farm system at the same time. Is there something when you guys are going through all these different team systems, looking at all the prospects, anything else that kind of just stood out to you, Jim, along the way? Yeah, you know, it, it's funny, too, because we get asked, I'm sure you do, too, Jonathan, on Twitter, in person, hey, how good is well, Where does Team X's farm system rank? And I always tell people it's a hard question to answer because until you sit down and actually break them all down, it, you know, it, there's so much that goes in and it's so subjective. But one thing that jumped out at me when I was putting together a top ten list so we could, we could start to put together the pipeline top ten list is that three of my top ten organizations are teams that, have traded you know, significant prospects in the last few months and still rank in the top ten. You, you have the Rangers, who gave up three top 100 prospects to the Phillies in the Cole Hamels trade, as well as Jared Eikhoff, who pitched very well in the big leagues after that trade. And I still had the Rangers as a top five organization. They might have been number one if they, I mean, that, no, not second guessing the trade because it helped them win the division. But if they don't make that trade, they might have ranked number one overall. And then behind them, kind of in my 6-10 to 10 range, I had the Red Sox, who, who gave up two top 100 prospects in the Craig Kimbrell trade in the offseason. 
uh, and they still rank very highly. You know, and they promoted a bunch of guys to the the big leagues uh, last year, and still rank highly. And then the Astros, who between the Scott Casimir trade, you gave up a, a very good catching prospect in Jacob Nottingham. They gave up uh, four very interesting prospects to the Brewers in the Carlos Gomez Mike Fires trade, and then they gave up four number one overall pick uh, Mark Capel to get Ken Giles from the Phillies at the winter meetings, uh, and I still have the Astros as a top-ten organization. So that's, I guess it's a long-winded answer, but that's what jumped out at me, is that you have three teams that have, that have given up significant prospects and trades and still have a lot more talent where that came from. How about it's you, John? Because, uh, just to chime in real quick, is at the same time, uh, we have the teams who, who are on the other ends of those trades also getting serious consideration. And we were, I talked about the Braves uh, you know, the, the Phillies uh, and the Brewers are probably the teams that added the most uh, in, in terms of that and, and worked their way into uh, consideration. And, and all three of those teams were teams that, I would say, what, a year and a half ago, two years ago, were probably on, on the closer to the bottom uh, in, in terms of organization. So, uh, you know, the, the teams that needed to restock have done that, and the, the teams that traded from their depth still, still, have talent, uh, still have talent coming. All right, guys, that is going to do it for this week's Pipeline podcast. Jonathan, Jim, great stuff as always.